Good morning. My name is Wendell Moses. I'm substitute teaching for the class today. So, shall we bow our heads for prayer? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of studying about you. Send your spirit into our hearts. May we hear what you are having the words say to us. May we speak what is necessary to help others. And may we be ready for your soon coming. Amen. So, we are on Lesson 9. The text for the day is Romans 8, 1 through 17. Um, I have provided a copy from the Phillips translation on the stand. I didn't read Tim's paraphrase about it until this morning, and I thought, ooh, I better, you know, whatever, but um, whatever. Um, The memory text, as listed in the quarterly, they chose Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Just before the class, we were talking about when you hear something, you are so... You have heard things so many times before, or you have a certain mindset or whatever, and you hear things that maybe aren't there. Okay, or you hear things that are, are there, you emphasize one portion more than another. In fact, the lesson chose as its title, No Condemnation. Okay? So the preparers of the lesson had an emphasis in their understanding of this passage that may not be what you see, whatever. Okay? You know, I have written out in my notes um, that memory text from four different translations. And it's amazing the difference that a translation will make as far as how it's presented, the same thoughts or whatever, from the, and translating over from the Greek or whatever. You know, uh, to begin, though, I have to say my premise in reading God's Word And in teaching this class, the number one premise that I have is the Bible is about God, not us. It's not about humans. It's about God. So in that theme, I would like for everyone to read. Now, I'm going to read from the front the entire page. We often don't read this much. But I think it's important today to read the entire passage that our lesson was supposed to be about rather than just Romans 8.1. If we're, re- if we're studying Romans 8.1 to 17, what is 1 to 17 say? So, Phillips, no condemnation now hangs over the head of those who are in Christ Jesus, or Jesus, Jesus Christ. For the new spiritual principle of life in Christ, lifts me out of the old vicious circle of sin and death. The law never succeeded in producing righteousness. The failure was always the weakness of human nature. But God has met this by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to live in that human nature which causes the trouble. And while Christ was actually taking upon himself the sins of men, God condemned that sinful nature so that we are able to meet the law's requirements so long as we are living no longer by the dictates of our sinful nature, but in obedience to the promptings of the Spirit. The carnal attitude, 
sees no further than natural things, but the spiritual attitude reaches out after the things of the Spirit. The, father atti- the former attitude means bluntly death. The latter means life and inward peace. And this is only to be expected, for the carnal attitude is inevitably opposed to the purpose of God, and neither can nor will follow his laws for living. Men who hold this attitude cannot possibly please God. But you are not carnal, but spiritual, if the Spirit of God finds his home within you. You cannot, indeed, be a Christian at all unless you have something of his Spirit in you. Now, if Christ does live within you, his presence means that your sinful nature is dead, but your spirit becomes alive because of the righteousness he brings with him. I said that our nature is dead in the presence of Christ, and so it is, because of its sin. Nevertheless, once the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives within you, he will, by that same spirit, bring to your whole being new strength and vitality. So then, my brothers, you can see that we have no particular reason to feel grateful to our sense to feel grateful to our sensual sensual nature or to live life on the level of the instincts. Indeed, that way of living leads to certain spiritual death. But if on the other hand you cut the nerve of your instinctive actions by obeying the Spirit, you are on the way to real living. All who follow the leading of God's Spirit are God's own sons. Nor are you meant to relapse into the old slavish attitude of fear. You have been adopted into the very family circle of God, and you can say with a full heart, Father, my Father. The Spirit himself endorses our inward conviction that we really are the children of God. Think what that means. If we are his children, we share his treasures, and all that Christ claims as his will belong to all of us as well. Yes, if we share in his sufferings, we shall certainly share in his glory. What did you hear? I heard that you can't be living in sin and claiming that you have received Christ. In other words, Christ's death does not just cover your sins. It makes you change your heart to want to live for Christ and to the right things. Okay. Anyone else? What did you hear in this passage? I heard release. Release from slavery. Release? So, live in sin versus Christ. Release from slavery to... Freedom. Freedom from... Fear. Okay. I heard it's not the law that saves you. Not law. Okay. What does? Christ. Knowing God. Christ. Okay. Anything else? When we accept uh, Jesus as Christ and we become part of God's family. 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 Okay. Anything else? I heard a tension between being a just a physical 
carnal human being and a spiritual um, free person. Spiritually free person. Okay. Anyone else? That we're all sons of God when we follow his leading. Sons of God. Going back to the family metaphor. Sons of God. Okay. So far, I have heard nothing about guilt described by you guys. Okay? And yet, when most people begin reading Romans 8, they start thinking about guilt. And in fact, the title of this lesson is No Condemnation. And yet, if you read this passage, these 17 verses, almost all of it has nothing to do about guilt. Okay? It has to do with a walk, a Christian life, a following after the Spirit, and the natural results of that walk. Okay? So... Without taking too much away from the future parts of future pages of the lesson, you know, why is there no condemnation? It's because the walk leads you in a way in which there is no guilt. Okay? Well, also because God doesn't condemn. We might condemn ourselves, but God doesn't condemn us. Who is the major condemner? Satan. Satan. It's not God. Okay? So. I put down lesson theme, what the lesson really is all about. God gave and is continuing to give of himself in both Father, Son, and Spirit that we be be like him. That is the way it was designed in the beginning and still is his ultimate goal. It's a walk. And yes, there, there may be guilt as part of uh, that package, you know, because of who we are as our natural being. But that is not the major emphasis for this passage or for most of the Scripture. And yet often we concentrate so much on guilt, forgiveness in the legal or the short-term, instantaneous term or whatever, and we're not concentrating on what this whole passage was about, about a walk, a relationship or whatever. Along those lines, I would like to skip Sabbath afternoon's lesson and go to Wednesday. I'm going to teach this lesson in reverse. (laughs) Okay? Before you go too much further, Uh beyond the, the sense of guilt... I've, I've done a lot of reading um, since we've had such political turmoil throughout the country. A lot of it having to do with the political left, if you will, those who are very much opposed to you know, individual uh, thinking. They, they want to go with the socialist type thinking and so forth. Anyway, these, these people specialize in putting guilt on their opponents. They, that's a major part of what they do in order to try to shut you up, you know, shut you down, if you will. And uh, I, I guess I should say where I got this whole idea 
And where it made so much sense to me was through reading some of what Ben Shapiro has said. And so he's, he's one of the major spokespeople in opposing or in meeting these ideas. So tying back to what you're saying about Romans at this point, if we, if we think back, most of the time that we are confronted with guilt, we are either adversarially uh, looking at our relationship with God, we haven't gotten there yet, or we're trying to place uh, some kind of a burden on someone else, you should feel more guilt because you're not spiritual enough, you're, you're too carnal or something. And so this, this makes a lot of sense. To me, I mean, it has a lot to do with with our current circumstances in this country. I tend to agree with a portion of what you said, okay? I would have to say that my observations have that both sides are trying to apply guilt. It's just about what you're going to apply guilt about, okay? And whether you agree with my definitions of what you should feel guilty about or what you agree with definitions agree about. And so this has more to do about argument and me and my whatever than about us. You know, there was a time in America in which you could have strong opposing opinions and and talk about those. Okay? I was invited, well, when you're invited by your bosses, I don't know if it's an invitation or not, but... Uh, <laughs> I was invited to a meeting um, two nights ago in which we discussed the management of the entity in which I work. In the course of the evening, a, a side topic that really didn't relate necessarily to our office at all, but had to do with corporate vision and all that sort of stuff, came up in which someone was touting the wonderfulness about something, and I thought it was destroying something. And finally, at the conclusion, the person who was speaking so beautifully about their vision and how it was being implemented and everything came up and apologized to me afterwards and said, still friends? And we had to shake hands because there was more heat than light. (laughs) Thinking about that, okay, I came across some passages this week um, from Mrs. White, who I at one time couldn't stand and now appreciate. And I will, first, before I read this passage, it is from a section of books called Testimonies, and I don't think you should ever read the Testimonies until you are converted and firmly established in your righteous by faith walk. Okay? Because if you read it with any other mindset, you'll have difficulties. Okay? But this is one small passage out of Testimonies, I think it's volume 9, 147, 148. Often as you seek to present the truth, opposition will be aroused. But if you seek to meet the opposition with argument, you will only multiply it. And that cannot afford to do. Hold to the affirmative. Angels of God are watching you, and they understand how to impress those who opposition you refuse to meet with argument. Dwell not on the negative points of questions that arise, 
but gather to your minds affirmative truths and fasten them there by your earnest prayer and heart consecration. I'm somewhat uncomfortable at times in my discussion in this class and others in which I feel like I'm presenting an argument. And I, um, that concerns me. Going on to lesson, the Wednesday's lesson, uh, entitled Christ in You. What does Christ in you mean? Where is he? Well, I mean, Jesus, when he was on earth, said, it's good that I go because when I go, I'll send the Holy Spirit, and he'll take what is mine and give it to you. Okay. So you have to say, what is mine? Well, what did he develop as a human being? Kind of uh, a character. He grew up and he developed a solid character, a relationship with God, a way of looking unselfish all the way to the point of death, way of looking at others in the world, and discipline, balance, everything that you, you know, most of us are. I grew up in the day when we had sanguine, choleric, and so on, the personalities. A lot of us are two, one or two of something and not that much of something else. But I really feel like Jesus was the only truly balanced being that's been here. He could be in crowds, but he also could be alone. He, you know, could get things done, but he could also kind of smooth things over. And so those kind of the the character, the closeness to God, everything that he was and everything that he developed is offered to us for free. I have difficulty with the term in you, in me, or whatever. Uh, I have a translation of the Bible called an American translation. It's by Moffat. Okay? If anyone can tell me where I can get this in electronic form that I can use on my computer, I'll pay you for it. Because <laughs> I, I appreciate this volume very much. It's just that, as, it's, as you can see, I bought it used. It's in tattered form. And... Um, uh, you can't search, you know, within it or whatever. And but what what um, Professor Moffat or whoever it was, um, Chicago, um, when they made that translation, they cho- chose the term "in union with," because it's truly in union with His Spirit, you know. And uh, you know, sometimes in the way that we speak about the Holy Spirit being in us. You expect to be a little different and robotish and, and lack of self-control. Whereas whenever you think of the fruits of the Spirit, the final fruit of the Spirit is self-control. It's not spirit control, it is self-control. And so, um, anyway, all right. I think as women, we might have a little easier time understanding what I'm saying because when you have children, something else is inside you. <laughs> it's in you. You're, you're actually c- c- uh, communicating with it. It's communicating with you, both physically and, you know, uh, mentally. It hears the noises you make and all that kind of thing. So for a, for a woman, it's not, you know, I think men are brought up so that they're, like, defensive against the entire world. It's you betcha. <laughs> no. <laughs> The rest of the world, games are who's winner, king of the hill. Girls grow up more like uh, connectedness oriented. And it, it's less of a stretch for us to imagine 
of being in you. Okay. All right. We're, we're going to move on in that, um, in that passage. Reading the first paragraph of Wednesday's lesson, Paul continues his theme contrasting the two possibilities that people face in how they live, either according to the Spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit of God, which is promised to us, or according to their sinful and carnal natures. One leads to eternal life, the other to eternal death. There's no middle ground. Or as Jesus himself said, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. It's hard to be plainer or more black and white than that. So it's contrasting life according to the Holy Spirit, life according to the sinful and carnal nature. This is not an imposed outcome. This is how the universe is designed. In the third paragraph, the central portion says, But as in baptism, there is not only a burial, but also a resurrection. So the person baptizes arises to walk in the newness of life. This means to put the death, the old self, a choice that we have to, of ourselves, make day by day, moment by moment. God does not destroy human freedom. And I thought, they've been to our class. <laughs> you know, because truly, God, God's way is not to destroy your freedom. And you have a natural way of living, which was how you were invented to be, at the very beginning, it has been side-railed by poor choices, and we have become diseased. And now that disease prevents us from living freely. Um, as some of you know, I, I, I like to jog. Um, I passed, I passed 7,000 miles on my treadmill um, this past week, and... Um, you know, I thought, this is great. And then I met a good friend at the hospital who is not blessed with my same needs. Okay? And they find the treadmill an act of torture. Okay? Now, they are not free to do what I'm free to do. And yet, I am not probably free to do something that they are free to do. That doesn't mean that we are in restricted by some external force is what has come upon us because of where we live, what we've inherited, you know, whether that be tendencies or physique or whatever. My brother, he's disabled because of his knees. He could not do what I do on the treadmill, you know, and he was not blessed with the same knees that I have. So anyway, um, even after the old man of sin is destroyed, it's still possible to sin. Okay? God does not say, okay, now you've joined me, you know, um, here's this little circle in which I'm going to force you to do what I, I believe or what I want you to do. Okay? In the highlighted section at the bottom of the page, dwell on this idea that the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the death is the same one dwelling in us if we allow him to. Think about the power that is there for us. What keeps us from availing ourselves of it as we should? So, we have this wonderful power. I'm a little resistant to the idea that we should concentrate or pay too much attention to what keeps us away. Okay? 
I think self-assessment is good to an extent. But I don't have the problem of making self-assessments. I have the problem of believing in a positive way that I can live a Christian life. The devil has done a masterful job on my brain, you know? And um, I, I don't have that much difficulty finding problems with my my whatever, okay? I can find problems very easily, okay? I think I should think about the power that is there for me rather than what is keeping me away. It's an area of emphasis, an area of approach, an area of what are you thinking about, okay? Well, one reason I think it's hard for us is because we were born in the carnal nature. I mean... It's inherent in us. It's almost like you have to struggle to be good because you were born with the sin. So it's it's so much harder to go the right, right. path than right. is the wrong because it's just a natural tendency to do that. Colossians one twenty seven, God's plan is to make known His secret to His people, this rich and glorious secret which He has for all peoples, and the secret is that Christ is in you which means that you will share in the glory of God. So, you're in union with Christ, you're in union with His Spirit, and because of that, you can share in His glory. And um, so much of the time, I'm worrying about something else. So, anyway. But think of it in terms of, of your patients, for example. They submit to you. They trust because they trust that you're going to, or their parents trust, that you're going to do a good job with them fixing whatever's wrong. So they submit to you. They lie down. They get anesthetized. You actually enter into their bodies, so you are in them at some point correcting things that are wrong, fixing things that are wrong. They've submitted to allow you to do that. And then when you have a wonderful outcome, it is a combination of them coming to you and trusting you and submitting to you and you doing the fixing that nature they wouldn't do themselves. So that's the combination of glory because they came to the right place and you did a great job. And so they share in that um, blessing blessing of that. Good. Just for those of you who are concerned, I, I am a pediatric orthopedic surgeon and do go inside of people sometimes and, you know, it, it's a necessary evil. Sometimes it seems more evil to the patient than good, but it is a necessary evil. And I say that to some people who really are trying to find a way to get away from the Bible or, or get away from Christianity maybe or something, they they want to make this whole idea of God and you, except through their own natural explanations, a fantasy. They want to make it just a fiction. And yet, when you focus on those problems that you say are so easily found, ultimately, you can either choose to focus on those problems and excuse yourself from them, or you can find a solution which will help you overcome those problems and go on to something else, something better. And that's what we have to offer in Christianity. And it's by practice that that happens. It doesn't, it's just not a, 
miraculous thing in which, boom, you know, it is a walk. It is a continual renewal and whatnot. And Christ tries to describe that in many different ways. <clears throat> Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Basically, I'm not going to push my way in. I'm not going to assault you. I wait for you to let me in. He talks about feeding people, watering people, bringing things to them that they need that will restore and refresh them. I, When I pray sometimes, I visually think of those huge, you know, like wall-sized doors that let nature in in the Caribbean or something like this in Hawaii. And I envision opening those doors and inviting big doors so that he can come in a lot, not just <laughs> not just a little like a peak, right. but um, with a chain, you know. <laughs> but big doors and say, "Come on in, bring food, bring medicine, bring your tools. Come to work on me, because without that, I'm a damaged, imbalanced person that does hurtful things to myself and other people, and only God has the power to do that." Uh, and so our part is really to open up the door, you know, invite him in to do his work. One of the translators that, that was translating the Bible into an African language, um, I don't remember which one, um, came to that passage. And he had difficulty because in their culture, the only person that knocks is a thief. A friend would come to your door and Speak through the door. Say, hello, um, I'm here. Open the door. Let's have supper together or whatever. But a thief would knock. And so when he translated the Bible into that language, he could not put, I stand at the door and knock. And so in that language, it's, I stand at the door and call. You know? And um, But it shows you in those terms how much effort God has to put in there to get our attention. Because in, in the Old Testament, there's a very poignant thing where, where God says, I stand all day long with my arms outstretched saying, Here I am! Here I am! Yeah. Going on to Tuesday's lesson. Um, Tuesday, the flesh or the spirit. They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to spiritually minded is life and peace. It says, dwell on these texts. What do they say about you, about the way in which you are living? Should you concentrate on your deeds and behaviors? Why? What you look at, you think, you think more about. <laughs> you okay. become more like what you think. As okay. man thinks, so is he. You think about all the bad things, that's going to become what you are. Here I quoted one of my texts, Proverbs 23, 7. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Where is that? It's not in our behaviors. It is. It's worked out in our behaviors, but it doesn't start there. When you think about the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind. It is not jealous or conceited or proud. Love is not ill-mannered or selfish or irritable. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love is not happy with evil, but is happy with the truth. Love never gives up, and its faith, hope, and patience never fail. 
most of that, although it may be expressed in some actions or whatever, most of that is between here. Okay? Has more to do with what you're thinking about, who you are, what you're concentrating on, what you're, who you, who do you value, you know, where do you put your value, where do you put your time, than about what you do with your hands or body or other issues. I find it interesting that David said, against thee, O Lord, against thee only have I said. about really? <laughs> <laughs> virtually raped Bathsheba, you killed her husband, you did all these things, and, and yet against oh, thee only have I said, uh, I would consider those a sin against people, in which case. You think about Uriah's parents, the grief they went to, their son never came back from the war. You know. And he was a Hittite, that's the interesting thing, he wasn't an yeah. Israelite, he was an, actually a Hittite, he did a better job of being a, a loyal um, trustworthy guy than, than David was. In Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew five twenty two and 28, But now I tell you, if you are angry with your brother, you will be brought to trial. If you call your brother, you good for nothing, you'll be brought before the council. And if you call your brother a worthless fool, you'll be in danger of going to the fire of hell. But now I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman and wants to possess her is guilty of committing adultery in her heart. This is all in the mind. It's not um, somewhere else. It's in the it's in the in the mind. So, um, the paragraph to follow this question is after here is used in the sense of according to Greek kata. Mind here means to set the mind on. One group of people sets their minds on fulfilling natural desires. The other sets their minds on things of the spirit to follow his dictates, because the mind determines actions. The two groups live and act differently. But that's not where it starts. Yeah. You know, and often we have all these, you know, we make fun of the Pharisees because they had, you know, however many hundreds of rules, and yet we have our own set, you know, and we've laughed about, you know, how the water, how, how high the water is in relationship to your knee. Or, or I remember a fairly prominent evangelist in the Adventist church came to our, our town when I was, well, I was still in that town, so I was less than 10, but I think I was closer to six years of age, okay? And my father um, was the engineering guy who, when they came to town, he made sure the lot was appropriate, he made sure the tent stayed up, and all the mechanical issues with putting on this evangel- evangelistic series, and Clearly in my mind, I can picture myself, and I hate to incriminate them, but my brothers and, um, and whatnot, and we stood on the curb um, adjacent to the tent. Across the street was a 7-Eleven equivalent, okay? That was before the days of 7-Eleven, but it was, you know, a little you know, fast food store or whatever. And they sold ices and candy. And we did get our allowance on Friday so we could pay our tithe. That was the reason we got our t- um, allowance on Friday, so we could pay our tithe on Sabbath. Well, 
I can remember standing on the curb and they had a big, huge white clock with a minute and second hand and whatnot, etc. And we knew by the bulletin that the sundown was 5.32. And so we're watching the second hand as it goes around until it went boing and we ran across the street and bought candy. You know? Really? But natural disasters bring that out in people too. There's generally two groups of people. Not any natural disaster is people who go in to rescue everybody they possibly can and bring them food and water and whatever they need. And then there's the other group sneaking around into their homes behind them trying to steal stuff and damage and so on, trying to use it for their own gain, the loss of another person. And in a bad situation, almost always brings out those two types of people who respond to this uh, disaster very differently from each other and from a mindset that's very different from each other. It always amazes me that we have to institute martial law after a major disaster. It's like, really? Gatlinburg, you know, burned and whatnot, etc. And, and several lives were lost, whatnot. We went up there recently and... It's, it's nice to see that there is green growing up in the middle of all that burned uh, forest, etc. It's amazing how quickly it's, co- it's coming back. But um, anyway, all right. At the bottom page of, of Tuesday's lesson, the fifth paragraph, this was Paul's answer to those Jews who couldn't understand why what God had given them in the Old Testament was no longer enough for salvation. Did that bother you? What God had given them in the Old Testament was no longer enough for salvation. Well, don't we do the same thing? I was going to say, we're the same way today. I mean, we're we're all about the process. I mean, you know, if we if we answered each other honestly, I, I think we could probably say the reason that we're here today is not that we feel that God is finished with us, but that God is not finished with us. We need to do more thinking and studying about these things. So we make that our process. They made their their Torah and all the rest of it their process. And to them that was that was all they needed. But was it ever enough for salvation? Yeah. Was ever the process did ever the process of the Old Testament provide salvation? For the worshiper. I don't know how much you've looked at the outline, the shape of the old tabernacle. And you look at the um, first compartment with the table of showbread and the, and the um, candelabra and the um, altar of incense and the curtain and all that sort of stuff. And then the inner table and everything else. And then you go outside the laver and the big um, uh, altar of sacrifice, etc., but never, no, no one talks about the killing spot. When you as a worshiper, a sinner, came with your lamb, you came to a spot beside the altar where you knelt down and put your hand on the head of the animal victim and you yourself cut the throat of that animal. It was to impress upon you the effect of sin 
But quickly we look at furniture and incense and process and all that sort of stuff and think, oh, that must be salvation. And those were tools to illustrate something, but that was not salvation. What happened in your mind before you came to God and then as you walked home, thinking about what had taken place and why and what not. And the devil was a master at diverting us away from the, the object lesson. And even now, we have now substituted Christ's death in a mechanistic way for the process. And we haven't thought about what it takes for salvation, which is salvation or healing. Okay? Yes? That's a very simplistic way of approaching it, right? If you can say, well, it's a formula. I'm good with formulas. I'm a scientist. It's a formula. We just do A, B, C, and we're going to get X, Y, Z at the end. Then it becomes very legalistic. It becomes very simplistic for that individual because they don't have any grades. They don't have to make any decisions themselves. They can just check their brain and move through the process. Instead of inviting God in, having Him dwell with you and change you, that becomes kind of scary to people who are really control people. That also the last part. Who is it changing? Often this formula that we're doing is meant to change someone else and not me. Okay? It's meant to change my record. It's meant to change God so he'll look nice at me. He'll, it's, it's meant to change, you know, erase something out of a record book somewhere. It's meant to do something outside of me. It's not, it's not me. And that's the key element is we become mechanistic in our behavior because we're trying to change the external. We're not trying to change the internal or let God change the internal. You know, Psalms 51, David after his sin with Bathsheba, what was his prayer? Create a pure heart in me, O God, and put a new and loyal spirit in me. That was the process. It wasn't an external process, mechanistically of killing animals and all that sort of stuff, etc. And yes, this is all pointed to the Messiah, but it's not changing who God is. God was doing this to change us. You know. In fact, even in the Old Testament, it says, you know, stop bringing meaningless offerings. I detest your Sabbaths and your new moons and your festivals. Because they didn't, they'd gotten to the point where it was so rote, it didn't really mean anything. They lost the whole point of it. It's amazing that we, we ascribe that and we say, wait a minute, didn't, isn't God the one that started all this? You know, and then he said, I don't want your sacrifices. Who, who asked you to bring these sacrifices in there? You did. You know, not really. You know, yes, he prescribed a, a method by which we become healed, but anyway. All right. But moving on, moving back to Monday. <laughs> what the law could not do. However good the law, the ceremonial law, the moral law, or even both, cannot do for us what we need the most, and that is to provide the means of salvation, a means of saving us from the condemnation of, and death that sin brings. For what? For that, we need Jesus. And here, uh, I had to mark through Jesus. Not because I don't need him, but who was Jesus? What did he say? Matthew, Matthew is it 15.26 or 16.26 or whatever? Um, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. 
So I have to put God. We need God, you know, and we don't need Jesus in the way of God. So he, it protects us from God. We need God, who God truly is, you know. We need to return to the original design, you know. When you think about Adam and Eve, when they were created, and they were communing with God, that's how it was to be. It was to be a continual walk for eternity. And it was stopped, okay? Stopped by diversion. So... Christ is not a patch that we put on us or on God. Christ is also not a filter by which we see God. He, to some degree, is our mechanism by which we see God because he demonstrated more fully than anyone else could have who God really is. But Christ is one of the three of the Godhead. And so we need God. We don't need a patch. We don't need, we need to be remade totally so that we can commune with God in the original way it was designed. The Trinity is our center and our core, you know. Anyway, that's one of my bees in my bonnet, but anyway. In John 1, it says that Jesus was the Word from the, of God, the Word from the very beginning of time. So you could think of God, as Jesus, part of God, as being the great communicator with us through, through his own life, through what he said. Um, and then he was also the one who everything that we see anywhere in the universe was created through him. Sort of a very active part of of God. So during the 33 and a half years that Christ was on earth, who communicated with the earth? Christ did, but he only communicated with a very limited number of people. Who was communicating with the rest of the world? Christ couldn't. He was restricted to a location. Okay? So he said, it's better if I go. So, while he was here, God the Father, he spoke several times. The Spirit was across all the world, okay? And, you know, someone else had to do the job because before that, probably Christ was the mediator from God to mankind. But when he became human, he could only communicate with whoever was right beside him, okay? And then after Christ left, we have the Spirit, once again, being the communicator. Okay? And do I understand all that? No. (laughs) But um, he is the communication vehicle by which we become like him. So, moving on down in in the lesson, the second paragraph, the incarnation of Christ was an important step in the plan of salvation, it is proper to exalt the cross, amen, but in the outworking of the plan of salvation, Christ's life in the likeness of sinful flesh was extremely important too. He did something with his life, you know. If he just needed to die, he could have died in Bethlehem with all the rest of the babies, and we would have had it fixed, 
okay? But his life was necessary to overcome as we can overcome by his spirit. Okay? This whole page I thought was good. I, um, in my, um, thing, I, you know, good, you know. So, anyway. The thing I thought of with exalting the cross, though, is that sometimes, let's say the movie The Passion of the Christ or something like that, the, the cross that's exalted is, um, an appeasement situation where, you know, I'm, I'm taking all the blows for all mankind, for all, you know, everybody through all the ages is occurring to me now, and this makes God happy. Yeah. And so that's the cross that's so often presented that uh, really undermines the whole what God wanted us to learn from the cross. You know, we have caricatures of the cross. You know, we, we wear it, we, we put it on our cars, we whatever, and yet when you think about it, it was a, a nasty instrument, and we have made it both a brutality and a nicety, and the process of what the cross means about that God, the, the creator of the universe, would come and live and walk. And give of himself. Incredible. Incredible. So, um, you know, that passage, um, unless you be born again, you shall not see the kingdom of heaven. And I always thought in my mind that was because unless you become born again, you will not get the, the pass to get into heaven. But really, unless you're born again, you can't even see you can't comprehend. You have no, no perception that allows you to understand any of this. You know, and it's only by the transforming our minds that we are even able to comprehend that, that we can truly see what he did for us. Otherwise, it is just a trinket or a car decal or whatever that we put on our car that has nothing to do with my life, you know, other than what club I belong to, okay? We like to belong to clubs. The, the meal that we had Wednesday night was at the country club. You know, it came time to pay for the meal. And so the organizer of the meeting said, oh, here, here's my credit card. We'll pay for the meal. They said, we don't accept credit cards. <laughs> says, we do not accept cash. You have to be a member here to pay. And many times we, in our Christendom, say, I have the Jesus card. I'm going to pull it out here and pay with this card. And what did Christ say? Many people will come in that day and say, I preached in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I did everything in my, your name. And he says, I'm not a card. that you lay down and pay for your bill. I never knew you. Anyway, no, I don't believe in joining the club or whatever, but, you know, I don't know how much it costs to join the club. I don't know. Whatever. I'm, I, I, <laughs> probably a lot, yeah. I, um, when I was here at college, I um, had to take a P.E. Well, the only P.E. that would fit into my schedule was golf. <laughs> the only class, because of my schedule and how it is and everything else, had to play golf. Now, it's, it's a dumb sport for me because you had to go out and play so many holes of golf and so I found a lighted course 
that I played at night. It was open 24-7, and I could go out, and I could play that course, and we played the required number of holes. And it was not Goonie Golf. It was, <laughs> it was a real course. It was a nine-hole course. And I, don't, I, I can't even tell you where it is. It was out somewhere in East Brainerd somewhere. I don't know where it was. I don't know where it was. I, you know, I just knew how to drive there, play my nine holes, get my ticket and all that sort of stuff, etc., and come back or whatever. So when we finished college, I was given a, a set of golf clubs. Because my wife thought that, you know, whenever I got through with medicine or whatever, that I would play golf. And I used those clubs at least four times in the next 30 years. <laughs> and finally, I think they're at Samaritan Center or somewhere else. I don't know where they are, but they're not in my garage anymore. Um, I think it's a wonderful sport, okay? I grew to appreciate how difficult it was and that the camaraderie of walking... Okay, it's great if you're in business, okay? Because if, if you play 18 holes, you have them for at least three hours or longer if you're Wendell. You know, they can't get away. You, you, um, unless they cheat or something, they're not going to get away with a very brief period of time. And it's a great time to make relationships, okay? So I can understand how it's a great business tool. Not for me, but for others. So when I went into, into practice... Um, I was part of a four-man group, and um, we took call. We rotated call. And so every week was a different schedule. And so people would say, hey, you wanna, let's make a foursome and go out and play golf on a routine basis. And, okay, every month I can do it one day. On, it'll be on a Tuesday or whatever. That, that doesn't work. You know, you need to. So anyway, whatever. So much for golf. It's a great game. Don't, don't let me disparage that. But anyway. All right. Let's go on down to Sunday's lesson. And I covered this a little bit before. What is the emphasis for Romans 8 1? No condemnation. <laughs> That's what you see. That's not what I see at all. Romans 8 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Okay? It's all about your walk, it's all about everything else. It's not about the condemnation part, and my, you know, okay? But it's truly what we see. What we often hear is the first two words or whatever it is in the various translations, okay? So if your emphasis is on your guilt and your past history or whatever, then no condemnation is good news, okay? I'm not going to take that away from anybody. It's good news, okay? But the rest of it is much better news, okay? How we walk with God in our freedom is much better news than what the first part is. Okay? And no, it's not an arbitrary thing. It's a natural result of living how we're supposed to be living, how we were invented to be living. When Ken and I got together, he had a Doberman and I had like a Maltese-sized dog. And I thought, my, my poor little dog is going to be eaten alive, but actually she turned out to be the boss. Anyway, we had walked him, and his Doberman was very well trained, been to obedience school. My dog, not so much. Uh, she would chase after squirrels and other things. And you could, you know, no matter what, something would get her attention and off she would go. So you could never, ever let her off the leash because she was always just racing off somewhere. Where his dog... We could, it was big, strong, rip your arm off kind of dog, but you could, t- you could take her off the leash 
And she was fine roaming around because the minute you said, come here, there she was. You know, no matter how strong the other influences were, she was obedient. And I started thinking as we were walking along watching these dogs, his dog had freedom because it was obedient. And my dog had to be, you know, leashed because she was disobedient. One of my favorite texts is in Psalms. And it says, Do not be the, like the mule that has to be restrained. Otherwise it will flee from you. Okay? Yeah. I understand where you're coming from. Okay. And Sunday's lesson, the first paragraph, In Christ Jesus is a common phrase in the Pauline writings. For a person to be in Christ Jesus means that he or she has accepted Christ as his or her Savior. The person trusts him explicitly and has decided to make Christ's way of life his or her own way. The result is a close, personal union with Christ. Excellent. The next paragraph is awful. I'd like to finish with Sabbath afternoon's lesson. And in the third paragraph, it says, Paul continues explaining that this freedom was purchased at infinite cost. Christ, the Son of God, took on humanity. It was the only way he could relate to us, could be our perfect example, and could become the substitute who died in our stead. No, that is not the truth. This says it was the only way he could relate to us. No, I cannot believe that this almighty God was damaged in some way and had to have Christ come down here to figure out who we were. He was our creator. He's our redeemer. It's we couldn't relate to him. It has nothing to do with damage on his part. Okay? That's not my God. He relates to us better than we will ever relate to him. It was not a damage on his part. We are not putting a patch on God. It's our damage he is is healing. It's not his. Okay? um, Obedience to law had not been nor ever can be a means of salvation at the bottom. Why? Because it it required a new creature. We needed to become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot perceive or even understand it. And we are becoming new by beholding, 2 Corinthians 3.18, God, we become changed into his likeness. We are not patching God. Let's bow our heads. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the witness that you have given to us, both through your Son, through your Spirit, and both by your actions itself. May we honor you, Maybe become more like you, maybe behold you, and may we help you in our lives to show to others what you are like. Amen.